Our scripture reading for the morning comes from the ninth chapter of John. First few verses, verses 1 through 12, skip a few, and then 18 through 25. Uh, This is a very famous passage. This is the passage of Jesus restoring sight to a blind man. But as I read the passage this morning, I am going to invite us all not only to listen to the miracle, but also to listen to the undertone to listen to the relationships that are being described and narrated out throughout our text. And again, this is the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 1 through 12, 18 through 25, can be found on page 102 in your pew Bibles. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light. Of the world. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, it is he. Others were saying, no, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. The Jews did not believe that this man had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that it is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that now he sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out and cast out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know 
that though I was blind, now I see. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on all of us. Amen. In her novel, Revelation, Peggy Payne tells the story of a Presbyterian minister who experiences a theophany, a direct encounter with the divine. One afternoon, while grilling steaks in the backyard, he hears the voice of God speaking directly to him. It's a revelation. It's the kind of revelation that will change his life. He will never again be the same. But the rest of the novel tells of the price that he pays for that revelation. Do the leaders of his congregation or his colleagues in the presbytery rejoice with him? Not exactly. They do, however, provide free psychiatric care and paid administrative leave. Now, this sort of response is not too far-fetched, is it? Because imagine if someone at your own place of employment claimed the same thing. Hey, everyone, God is speaking to me. Most likely, after a few attempts at intervention and maybe a couple of reassignments, eventually that person would probably have to go because they were claiming to see things to which we all are blind. That is the way that the formerly blind man found it in today's lesson, sharing his revelation, his encounter with Jesus, encounter with the divine, was a struggle. In John's gospel, the story of his cure takes exactly two verses. Mud on his eyes, wash in the pool. But the controversy surrounding this miracle takes 39 verses. And that as Paul Harvey would say, is the rest of the story. We could have done that better than that. And that is the rest of the story. Beautiful. The rest of the story is that the church has always been pretty good at investigating spiritual irregularities, but not always so good at acknowledging the power of God and how that power cannot be contained by any preset religious premise. It is not difficult to sympathize with the Pharisees, though, the leaders in this story today, is it? Especially through our more postmodern lens. They were really only attempting what many of us have been trained to do. Observe, describe, and explain some sort of phenomenon, all while, dare I say, attempting to maintain a sacred sense of order. Almost a Presbyterian scientific method. But does this story mean that one must possess special knowledge to be a follower of Jesus? Does today's story mean that one must see in the same way that God does? No. Not knowledge. But I would recommend that a follower of Jesus possess at least a base level of Jesus' acknowledgement. Not knowledge. 
but acknowledgement. Let me explain. The formerly blind man did not know all the correct religious phrases with which to interpret this sight-giving miracle. We don't know much about him other than that he was blind and that he begged. He was not pious in the traditional sense or even very respectful of the elders. What we know for sure was that once upon a time he sat in darkness and now the whole world was drenched in sunlight. And he acknowledged that by saying, one thing I do know is that though I was blind, now I see. One thing I do know, it's an acknowledgement that we all can claim for how the light of the world has greatly helped us through some of our own of life's most trying seasons. One thing I do know, one thing I do know. How is that for ironic understatement? As if only the smallest thing that you can happen to acknowledge happens to be who gave you sight? Who helped you through that dreadful time at work? Who helped you through your divorce? Who ended up actually saving your life? The blind man does not necessarily know Jesus. He is not a follower, but acknowledges Jesus with a simple statement about the very goodness of Christ. Dr. J. Lewis Martin writes that this story, this John chapter 9 story, reflects the historic parting of the ways between the synagogue and all of the Jews who ended up believing in Jesus. The larger story going on in this healing narrative is the separation. Some might even say the schism of the faith community. Some of Abraham and Sarah's children remain there in the synagogue, while others decide to follow Jesus and the way. That is the backdrop. And this narrative represents a moment in which that relationship is forever tarnished. And the pieces of that relationship are still being woven back together millennia later. We were once so close. And just how close we still are can be seen in those moments when we acknowledge our dependence on God and place no limit on who or how God can save. If we read this story with this broader broken relationship understanding, we see that this passage is a tragedy, and we end up calling on God to write a new and better ending. It is this new ending that I would like us now to turn toward for the remainder of our time together this morning. For this entire chapter of the book of John appears, at least to this preacher, to be full of broken relationships, each yearning to experience restoration or at least an acknowledgement of some new or better way. For example, in the previous chapter directly, the verse directly before the encounter that Jesus has with the blind man, Jesus narrowly escapes being stoned by the tribal leaders 
So I would state that that relationship is not in a good place. The Pharisees are distraught. Why? Because Jesus heals the blind man on the Sabbath, resulting in tenuous relations with the formerly blind man, that man's parents, and again, ultimately with Jesus. Instead of an acknowledgement of the divine or even an acknowledgement of something simply good happening, the result is direct conflict with leaders and community members arguing over whose knowledge of the incident, what its interpretation happens to be, whether it's the most accurate, if it's the most powerful, the most appropriate, the most ordered. All of these set in the context of the earliest days of the fracturing of the community surrounding the community of faith, the synagogue. Though the legacy of today's scripture could be the interfaith, the Abrahamic outcome of Jewish-Christian relations, I want to instead focus on the relationships that humans have with one another, with each other, and then further how those relate to our own personal relationships with God. As Larry taught last Saturday, or excuse me, last Sunday, there is nothing that God does not already know about us when we pray or when we confide our innermost thoughts to the divine. But how often we broken humans forget that. For it is often how we engage with our fellow human siblings of the spirit that points us to how we also interact with the divine. And if those aren't aligned, it's growing edge for our own personal faith. Now, I want to thank the work of Sam Wells, who inspired this reading of John, and whose work I'm hermeneutically reshaping here into this example. In the spirit of this entire chapter, one that provides example after example of broken interpersonal relationships, one that as a whole details the very beginnings of the breaking of the relationship between those that follow Jesus and those that do not. I want to provide three simple words that we may all need to unlearn when framing our own interpersonal relationships, and then three that I would recommend that we should use in their stead, all in a faithful effort to enhance and to restore our relationships with one another. All of these words, all three, are found in this chapter, in today's passage from John, and all can change our lives and the future of the church for the better. The first word to unlearn is if. First word to unlearn is if. If is a word that pervades human arrangements. If you keep your side of the bargain, I will keep mine. If you weren't so annoying, exasperating, infuriating, then I would be kind, gentle, and understanding. If you would simply tell us, formerly blind man, who healed you, then we would certainly let you back into the faith community. Come on, won't you just tell us? As we strive to restore our interpersonal relationships in the name of Christ, I recommend we dispense with the word if, and we, pr and we replace it with the word always. 
when the word always is used, then love is no longer conditional. Love is permanent, even with those with whom we disagree. It's true that each and every human being is not going to be the best of friends. There are relationships that need to be terminated, and those experiences are sometimes unavoidable, even necessary. But Westminster Presbyterian Church is a faith community much more centered on aspiration than on desperation. If is the language of contract. Always is the language of covenant. If is provisional. Always unconditional. It does not matter, formerly blind man, what you know of who healed you or not. You are always welcome here. Always. The second word to unlearn is for. The second word to unlearn is for. For is the curse of any and all relationships. Do you know how many hours I've spent making this for you? Have you any idea what it costs me to work so hard for you to have a comfortable future? Four names the accumulation of unspoken resentment until like a bursting dam it floods into, throughout, and permeates the entire relationship. Four is based on guesswork, assumed benevolence, a private sense of unrecognized moral superiority. John clearly states how afraid the blind man's parents are, and we can see it. Clearly he is of age. And we don't know how our son's sight was restored, but he is of age. And we don't know anything about Jesus, so don't ask us. Ask our son. He can speak for himself. He is of age. As we strive to restore our interpersonal relationships in the name of Christ, I recommend we do away with four and replace it instead with. We do away with four and replace it with the word with. For is about entitlement. With is about sharing. With requires constant relating, regular recalibrating, honest rebalancing, and of course, most importantly, doing those things together. The point is never to do it well or quickly or efficiently, whatever the it of the relationship happens to be. But the point is to do that it in community. Relationship building is not a performance to make the world applaud. It's a mystery to enter into together much more deeply and often, dearly beloved, that involves a little bit of risk. We do not know anything about Jesus, but clearly our son can now see. It is a miracle. Let us go find him so we can answer all of your questions with him and celebrate this good news together with. Which leads us to the third word to unlearn, and that word is ask. The third word to unlearn is ask. We see far too much of this unhealthy asking in today's Bible passage. Who sinned, the man or his parents? 
Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Is this your son? Perhaps, and more personally for us, these are questions like, Is there anything you haven't told me? Did you love someone else before me? Why haven't you finished this yet? You can almost hear the anger crescendo in those questions. Now let me state something clearly. Inquiring for information, being in dialogue with one another is not bad. In fact, it's actually healthy. But it is always the questioner who sets the agenda. The one asking has all the power. And so as we strive to restore our interpersonal relationships in the name of Christ, I recommend we do away with ask and we begin with something deeper. And that is wondering. To share your own memories of the past is an act of trust, an act of tenderness. But to share your wonderings about the future is intimacy of an even higher order. I wonder what you are looking forward to. I wonder what you are afraid of. I wonder who you most want to talk to. I wonder what you most need from me. You're going to Scotland with the church in a few weeks. I wonder what you're most looking forward to doing there. You just became a church officer. I wonder what you don't want us to talk about in a session meeting. You just joined the church. I wonder what about this faith community called you to this sanctuary, to that font, to these people, and to this God. You once were blind. But now you see. I wonder what God has in store for us. Wonder. A wondering doesn't set an agenda. Wondering together sets a stage. It says dream with me. Ponder with me. Explore with me. Discover with me. When you ask, you almost always have an idea of the right or the desired answer. But when you wonder together, you are opening up your heart to something that neither of you yet knows. Three little words. Always takes away the fear of the future. With means that you will never be alone. And wonder means that the future together is an adventure. Additionally, these are three words that everyone can relate or aspire to. If these three relationship words are put into practice, someone may even discover something about their own discipleship. Because one of the most important things about our interpersonal relationships, how we all act with one another, is that it is almost always setting the stage for how we individually interact with God. Further, the vital thing about these three little words is that they describe the three best ways that we can relate to God. 
with confidence that God is never going away, always, with joy in the beautiful world created together, with and with awe at God's glory, wonder. Every human relationship is a way to practice the always, the with, and the wonder of being together, that we may better be able to comprehend the always, the with, and the wonder of being with God. Now, I have taken a passage that tells the miraculous healing of a blind beggar in a setting that describes the fracturing of a faith community and taught us at least one method for the healing power of relationship restoration. But our world has rarely seen anyone lovingly perform that task nearly so boldly or passionately as the saint Mother Teresa, who famously said, Because we cannot see Christ, we cannot express our love to him in person. But it is our neighbor that we can see. And we can do for them what we would love to do for Jesus if Jesus was here and visible. Let us put love into our actions, beginning in the family, in the neighborhood, and in the street. It is difficult, but that is where the work begins. We are co-workers with Christ, a fruit-bearing branch of the vine. I'll tell you, friends, that there is one thing I do know, and that is that if we can acknowledge the loving wisdom of Mother Teresa, then we can be confident that our relationships with every single person that we greet and every single person that we meet will be able to meet them always with wonder. Amen. Amen.